0: This month on security management highlights.
1: Now with the big data applications, investigations don't have to start from a tip. Criminals
0: and investigators are leveraging new technology to accomplish their goals, both in carrying out corruption and in fighting it. News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo has the scoop. There are strains of malware that simply
2: just encrypt people's files and there's no way to decrypt them.
0: Ransomware attacks are on the rise, but just how dangerous are these hacks? And what are the motivations for the attackers beyond financial incentives? Associate Editor Megan Gates explains.
3: Plus... So they learned to be curious, they asked questions, they listened, and they did a lot of learning on the job.
0: Rose Littlejohn, Managing Director of Business Services at PricewaterhouseCoopers, tells us more about a study she conducted on women in the security field. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert-Stowell, and that's all coming up on this edition of Security Management Highlights. In a fight between fraudsters and the feds, technology is playing a role on both sides. News and Trends editor Mark Tarallo is here to tell us more about two corruption cases and how they illustrate that battle. Hey, Mark. Welcome to the final podcast of the year. Hi, Holly. So tell us a little bit more about the charges levied by the SEC last summer in two major information trading cases.
1: In the first case, the SEC announced insider trading charges. Against seven people who allegedly made millions by trading on confidential information about some impending mergers and acquisitions. According to the SEC, a former IT employee of Bank of America used his access to the bank's computing systems to tip off individuals who then traded on the information. The traders then profited on market-moving news that was related to 30 or so impending corporate deals. More specifically, the complaint alleges that this former IT employee tipped off his girlfriend's father, who then traded on the information and used coded conversations and in-person meetings to, in turn, relay the tips to his friend who was a financial advisor at a brokerage firm, the financial advisor then used this confidential information to make profitable trades for his firm's clients. So he earned commissions for himself, so he made money from himself, and also his clients made money on this confidential information, according to the complaint. The complaint also alleges that the suspect's girlfriend's father's friend, uh, it's kind of a web here, but that he traded on behalf of himself and his wife based on tips that he got from the girlfriend's father. So you had seven people who were all involved basically passing information, some of them trading on it. Now, in the second case, the SEC charged a former accountant at Celator Pharmaceuticals with passing on confidential information to this accountant's two friends about the clinical trial results for a cancer drug and also about the impending acquisition of another company. Now, this is valuable information that this accountant allegedly passed on Because the company's stock ultimately rose more than 400% when it announced positive results for its drug to treat leukemia. According to the SEC's complaint, two friends of the accountant purchased Celator stock based on these tips. And then agreed to share their trading profits with the account. One friend also allegedly passed on the tips to his father. So again, you have several people who are passing on information, uh, obtaining information from the person who the SEC is charging, passing it on, and then these people who receive it make money off of it on trades.
0: And you write that these two cases have something in common, both as far as how the perpetrators evaded detection by officials, as well as how the SEC finally caught them. So what tools did both the suspects and the investigators use?
1: Yeah, as you say, both suspects and investigators are really trying to utilize technology. In terms of the suspects, they were using technology like messaging applications that utilize encryption so other people cannot see messages or applications where the messages disappear so in both cases encryption and disappearing messages you have suspects trying to cover their tracks by using technologies Now, from the investigative side, they're having good results with big data applications that let them analyze trading patterns. So, all this trading information is always kept. Trades are always recorded, whether they're online or they're actually done on the floor of the exchanges. Trades are recorded, and these big data applications crunch all this data and then analyze them in terms of patterns. So you can see different patterns that arise And sometimes these patterns may indicate, hmm, maybe something's fishy here with this trading activity. So investigators are using these big data applications and, as these cases show, having some productive results from them.
0: And one expert also added investigations are no longer linear, but that these new technological tools allow officials to look backwards at past activity by a trader and identify patterns. What else can you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, that's a very interesting development that John, Jonathan Fertlow, uh, managing director with Kroll's cybersecurity and investigations practice, talked about because typically a white collar investigation would start out with a tip. Of some sort. It could be a tip from a colleague, a tip from almost anybody, and it could also be even kind of a random finding. But basically, the tip indicates okay, person A may be illegally trading. So the tip looks legitimate. And if there's any evidence, even if it's circumstantial evidence, then the case can be built. Okay, let's look into this. Yes, investigators can find it does look like that person was illegally trading. Now let's build a case, see if we can build a case. And then you can get, you know, different, where were they trading? How much money were they making? Did they possibly get illegal information from who? That type of thing. Okay, now with the big data applications, investigations don't have to start from a tip. So really, this broadens the field as to what you can investigate, investigations can start with a pattern that looks suspicious. And that would be much more common than tips. Investigators may get a lot of tips, but big data patterns, that's just a much bigger subset. So it has the possibility of catching more people. Now, of course, every pattern that looks suspicious doesn't necessarily reflect illegal activity, but as investigators get better and better With analyzing all this information, it has the possibility of eventually leading to more and more arrests of illegal traders. It's a tool that's been used for at least a year, maybe a couple years, but it's still fairly new. So, you know, it's being more refined and its use is being uh, more and more refined.
0: Thank you so much,
1: Mark. Thanks, Holly.
0: Hackers are increasingly taking data hostage in ransomware attacks. But is this just the threat vector de jour or are ransomware attacks here to stay? Cybersecurity editor Megan Gates is here to talk about her cover story. Hi, Megan. Thanks for
2: stopping by the podcast. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, for those listeners that have had a chance to see our beautiful cover, that story is by Megan about ransomware. So, Megan just give us a little overview of what exactly a ransomware attack is and tell us how widespread the problem has become.
2: Yeah. So really basically ransomware is malware used to encrypt data on a machine, on a network. So it's usually malware that's sent to you through like maybe a phishing email. So you open it, the malware installs on your computer and encrypts all this data in the background. And then it will send you a note saying, Hey, we've encrypted all your files. If you want them back, you need to pay us this amount of money. Usually in Bitcoin, or another cryptocurrency to then decrypt the data. Some ransomware attacks will then escalate, like if you don't pay within this amount of time, we're going to double the ransom, or if you don't pay within this amount of time, we're going to delete all your stuff. So basically, they're just putting pressure on you because they want you to pay them. So between 2015 and 2016, the number of ransomware attacks globally increased 300%, and on average, there were 4,000 attacks per day in 2016. According to a U.S. government interagency report, report. And ransomware is now considered the top malware threat by Europol. And this is expected to continue into 2018. And just to clarify, ransomware is not to be confused with like theft and demand of payment, like the recent data breach that was disclosed by Uber, where hackers stole customer and driver personal information. And then they demanded Uber pay them $100,000 to delete that information, which Uber ultimately did. But that is a different style of attack.
0: So Megan, what are some of the more recent high-profile ransomware attacks, since like you clarified, Uber wasn't one of them? And why did the sources you spoke to say they can be so dangerous?
2: Yeah, so let's start off with one of the biggest ones from 2017, which was the WannaCry attack. It hit hundreds of thousands of computers on May 12th. WannaCry exploited a vulnerability in Windows computers, which Microsoft had actually released a patch for in March 2017, so two months before the attack happened. This vulnerability, it used the... Blue exploit, which was allegedly stolen from the US National Security Agency, and it hit the healthcare sector especially hard. And what it did was it encrypted files and then it asked people to pay $300 in Bitcoin to decrypt them. And so this attack was really important because it showed the importance of regularly patching your systems. I spoke to Eldon Sprickerhoff, he's the founder and chief security strategist at eCentire. And he said, you know, that this type of attack could have been prevented, you know, had people patched their systems, but they didn't. He said it was a great example of, you know, how sometimes in security we lose sight of just the basic things that we need to do and focus on sort of the big, sexy, new threats when some of the most important things to do are just boring stuff, like patch your system, create strong passwords. And so another type of attack that was recent was an attack against Nayana, a South Korean web hosting company, attackers originally used ransomware and encrypted a bunch of their data and demanded $4.4 million to decrypt it, which is like a huge, ridiculous amount of money for ransomware. Niana was able to negotiate with the hackers down to $1 million, and then they paid it to get their data back. But this really shows how attackers are going to start targeting their efforts You know, to go after really important data that companies you know, maybe don't have a backup for that is essential to what their business 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 does so that they're willing to pay that ransom to get it back.
0: So in your article, I thought it was interesting that you make the point, not all ransomware attacks are launched the same way, and hackers often have different motivations for why they're launching that attack itself. It's not always just for money. Could you explain?
2: Yeah. So I spoke to this really great research analyst at Digital Shadows. His name is Michael Marriott, and we kind of talked about, you know, who are the different hacking groups, attackers using ransomware, and kind of what are their motives? Why are they doing it? And you know, obviously there is a financial incentive for some groups that want those big payouts or just to make regular income by launching ransomware attacks. But then there are other motives like just sowing disruption. There are strains of malware that simply just encrypt people's files and there's no way to decrypt them. And then there are other groups that have maybe a political motivation for their ransomware attacks. So They'll encrypt someone's files and then they will demand a ransom, but it's not a payment. They want, you know, some sort of action taken. Like there was an example of a recent strain of ransomware that was targeted towards businesses in Israel. And the hackers were just basically demanding that they would get their files back once there was a free and independent Palestinian state. So, yeah, obviously there is a big financial incentive, but it's not always about the money.
0: And finally, you talk about a Europol report that says ransomware isn't going away anytime soon, and your sources agreed. So why is that, and what did your sources say? Everyone that I've talked to, all of the the articles, papers, research
2: that I've done has basically said ransomware is not going away. There are continuously new strains of ransomware being developed and launched every day. Um, there's ransomware as a service, so you don't want to make your own ransomware. You can pay someone to, like, subscribe and use their ransomware and launch a tax for it. So it's become kind of a big, successful criminal enterprise, and, you know, and people are still paying the ransom. So it's effective. Criminals will keep doing it because people keep paying them. But it was interesting. I talked to Michael Marriott, the research analyst from Digital Shadows, kind of about what's being done to prevent ransomware from from spreading, from growing. And he said one of the biggest things that will slowly have an impact possibly is preventing criminals once someone's paid the ransom of being able to actually use the money that's paid for them. You know, right now it's usually a transaction that takes place in Bitcoin, but how do the criminals get that money out and then spend it? So that might be a new way to prevent the spread of ransomware.
0: Excellent. People really do care about their files, but hopefully we can come up with some effective solutions. And just to mention, there is a sidebar in Megan's article about what to do if you are the target of a ransomware attack. So be sure to check that out in the print edition. Thank you so much, Megan. Thanks for having me, Holly. While women are a minority in the security industry, a new study shows that leveraging that diversity can help advance the careers of women. Rose Littlejohn, Managing Director of Business Services at PricewaterhouseCoopers, joins us to tell us more about her study on this topic. Hi, Rose. Thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks so much, Holly, for the opportunity. We really enjoyed your story on women insecurity, and we just wanted to know a little bit more about the thought process you underwent when you decided to conduct the study.
3: So there have been some significant changes that have taken place in the advancement of women's leadership since the 20th century, yet really not enough has been done to close the gender leadership gap that still exists in the majority of different types of leadership positions in government and in industry. But despite the perception that men and women lead differently, the reality is there is a difference between the presence and power of each of these groups and the power that they have within the organizations that they work So the same gender leadership gap that exists in the field of corporate security with not enough leader role models and sponsors to nurture the next generation of new leaders. So the purpose of this qualitative study that I worked on was to focus on women corporate security leader viewpoint about how they entered and advanced into leadership roles within the corporate security field.
0: So you write that in your research, you found that when given the opportunity, women were able to demonstrate their value and worth to the organization when they pursued those opportunities given to them. Can you expand on that concept? Sure. So the most overarching theme that emerged from the study was that
3: when women were given the opportunity to demonstrate their value and worth to the organization was when they had the opportunity to pursue something outside of their comfort zone, a new skill, a new project and some of the participants had pursued work in security. It was either a natural progression from law enforcement or the military. Others entered the field right out of college. But in a number of circumstances, these women took on opportunities that when they were not even sure of themselves that they could succeed, but they they were confident and they recognized that they could take it on, they weren't going to be perfect, and that they would learn. So they learned to be curious, they asked questions, they listened, and they did a lot of learning on the job. And an important theme that emerged consistently was knowing the operations of one's business. So if you go into an organization and you understand and learn about the business itself it added a lot of credibility to the role and to the opportunity
0: Women also responded in your study that being female in a male-oriented field sometimes helped them be successful and that feelings of belonging influenced decisions they made throughout their careers. How were these things both true for the women who participated in your study? So the ability to demonstrate the skills and the talents required for the job is really
3: important for both men and women. However, the participants in this study felt that women were continually proving themselves. And they had to fit in in a way that was different from their male counterparts. So each one of the participants expressed like a high level of satisfaction and felt a rewarding career in the security industry. But none of the participants felt that the challenges were so great that they would have to give up. Actually, it was the opposite. They felt empowered to want to do more. So the definition of belongingness actually varied amongst the participants, but in general, The theme that emerged stressed the importance of feeling like they belonged, fitting into a male-oriented industry, was a challenge at times. And they were pleased to have broken through and have established themselves in a rewarding career and in the industry. But the sense of belonging was different for a majority of the participants, depending on the organization which they were associated with. And participants expressed like a positive linkage between the people who advocated for this for them and the sense of belonging to the organization. So in other words, organizations that were supportive of career growth and career advancement for women were really a great platform for women to grow and you know, expand their career. But there were pivotal points in their stories that marked a turning point in their careers. And the common theme about these pivotal points among the participants was that they were not afraid to take on new opportunities and take on a hard challenge that others did not want to take on. And these challenges actually helped to shape who they became as security professionals and differentiated them as leaders in the workplace and in the industry.
0: Given the findings of your study, you make a few recommendations for females in the security industry.
3: Can you share some of those with us? There are four recommendations that came out of my study. So the first is around seeking opportunities to succeed. So the interviewees indicated that organizations traditionally relied heavily on credentialing, so where you came from, and who you know within an organization in order to make things happen, in order to grow. Well, the professionals in this study found that their way through hard work, perseverance, and endurance while navigating the gray areas of the corporate environment really helped quite a bit. And the reality is that professionals need to advocate for themselves, right? You have to own your own career. And leadership needs to take a more direct stance on how they retain, develop, and enhance leadership within their organization. But the reality that came through all of these discussions is that the on-the-job opportunities opened up doors for these professional women. So they entered the field, they were passionate about the field, they were given opportunities because someone took an interest in them and helped them to you know, grow and demonstrate their true capabilities. And in fact, one of the um, participants felt that, you know, it shouldn't be so hard to define a career for women in a male-oriented field like security. But the world of academia provides sort of the foundation for success once you leave school, but it's the -the on-the-job training that helps young women to succeed in the business world. And young women and girls who will be our future leaders in the field We need a better system for identifying role models and advocates that can help to guide them in the workplace. Second recommendation is making gender diversity a differentiator. So even after many years of women's movement and advancement of women in leadership roles, we see a very slow progression in the space. Participants in the study indicated that being a woman can actually serve as a differentiator in the workplace versus a deterrent because organizations have experienced the strategic and financial benefits Benefits to gender-balanced leadership. In fact, 85% of the nation's financial wealth is controlled by women. So this means that women play a very big role in the marketing and selling of products and services to women. It starts with the organization that cultivates women right out of college and throughout the life cycle of their careers. Next is breaking through in a male-oriented industry. So this seems to be a common theme amongst the participants Who have succeeded. The participants have figured out that through hard work and the ability to not making women an issue help them to be successful. The workplace needs both men and women and their diverse talents to make it a productive, effective environment. So putting a woman in a key leadership position sends a message to the rest of the organization that the security industry as a whole believes that women can fill the roles that were once filled by predominantly men. And then the fourth is the importance of relationship and mentorship. And this has certainly been an area that I personally have experienced and really a true believer in success in, in not only the corporate security field, but in other fields as well. It's the most emphasized area of focus amongst the participants, relationship and mentorship being key to their career success. And the majority of the participants also indicated favorably about the support that they received from the organization. The organization should really adopt a mentoring program that creates an environment which new talent can navigate a large organization. A mentor, is different from a sponsor, someone who's going to advocate for them. Also having a sponsor within the organization who can take them Mm -hmm. through sort of career progression and development and speak on their behalf and be an advocate for them. Thanks so much for taking the
0: time to join us today, Rose, and tell us about your study. Thanks so much, Holly. It's great to be here. Really
3: appreciated the opportunity and hope to talk to you again soon.
0: That does it for this month's episode. On behalf of everyone here at Security Management and ASIS International, we'd like to wish you a very happy holidays and new year. If you have any comments or feedback, please submit a review on iTunes or email us at at smpodcast.asisonline.org. Once again, I'm your host, Associate Editor, Holly Gilbert-Stowell. Until next time and next year, bye-bye.